Good afternoon, everyone. It is a uh, real pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Megan Lanefall this afternoon. Megan was one of my former critical care fellows when uh, I was at the University of Pennsylvania and now is a good friend and hopefully a future collaborator. Megan went to, um, got her undergraduate as a double major at UC Berkeley where she was Phi Beta Kappa and graduated magna cum laude. She followed that with medical school at Yale uh, where she was also uh, AOA and then um, attended um, came to Penn for her residency, uh, internship residency, and I think I just hit your slide. That's okay. Sorry about that. Um, and fellowship, and then she um, has since gotten a master's in science in, and health policy research uh, at the Penn School of Medicine, and she does some work at the um, Health Policy Institute up at Penn. Most of her publications to date have been in handoffs, specifically um, amongst attendings. I think she published the first paper on handoffs in attendings. She looks at transitions, transition of care, um, and her research is, is a combination of quantitative, which all of us are uh, familiar with, and qualitative research. And today she's gonna talk about her most recent area of interest in research, the post-intensive care syndrome. Please welcome Megan. Thanks everybody. <clears throat> and thanks, Maureen, for that lovely introduction. I apologize for being a little hoarse. Um, my interest in post-intensive care syndrome really came out of my interest in transitions. And I realized, as I think a lot of us do, we have historically patted ourselves on the back for getting people out of the ICU, and we don't necessarily think about what the next steps are for them. And in thinking about what transitional care intervention should look like for patients who survive the ICU, realize that we don't really have a good sense of what the patient's experience is. So although I'm going to focus broadly on post-intensive care syndrome and give you, a, give you all a grounding in that, I'll talk a little bit about some of the research that I'm doing interviewing patients and families about their experience. So I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose. I do study PICS, and I'll talk a little bit about that. I have some funding for my handoff work and for my PICS work from the, from the people up there. And for those of you who have student debt, I can tell you about how you get the NIH to repay your loans. It's a great thing. So um, this is really the guiding principle behind what I want to talk about. Ramona O. Hopkins is a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. And she said, because decreased mortality among critically ill patients has resulted in increased survival and post-ICU morbidities, our success can no longer be measured by mortality. So for a long time, we said, okay, great, we're getting these people out of the ICU, let's move on. We have now a burgeoning population of people who have survived the ICU who are profoundly impaired, and we need to figure out how to support them and how to, how to do right by them. So the objectives for this talk are really to talk about the three major components of post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS. And I'll stop here and ask for a show of hands, how many of you have heard of PICS? Okay, so most of you have heard of it. How many of you feel like you're super comfortable and could explain it to somebody? Okay, a couple, good. Um, I'll ask you to list two clinical factors that increase the risk of PICS, two environmental factors, and then two interventions that show promise in decreasing PICS symptoms. So first I wanna talk a little bit about definitions. Post-intensive care syndrome, as defined by a consensus conference at uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine, it describes new or worse health, health problems after critical illness that remain after someone leaves the hospital. They can affect body, thoughts, feelings, and mind, and they affect both the patient and the family. And I want to start off with uh, a patient perspective, which I think really frames it very nicely.
I had kind of difficult dreams of delirium, and it was a lot of different kind of dreams I would dream. Um, I would see like uh, blood circles. Um, in my in my dreams, I would see uh, kids running around with uh, animal heads. Um, I even um, I won't be too drastic in what I'm about to say, but I even felt like we got a delta here, like uh, someone had you know clipped my penis off. And I even, I, I felt all this stuff, man. I thought it was real. And, um, it was, it was just kind of difficult going through that in your mind and, 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 and no one in there kind of understanding. They think I'm telling them these things and they looking at me like I'm crazy. So, um, for me, it was getting kind of frustrated. Uh, they said I was pretty difficult to handle at the time, knowing, <laughs> you know, me being intimidated or whatever. The, the fight you were talking about. I just thought people were trying to do things to me at the time in my mind, you know, but, um, and just trying to defend myself. I didn't know what was going on. So, you know, these were a lot of things that I, that actually transpired in my mind at the time. Tired and just worn out and weak. I couldn't walk no more than, um, maybe three to four. I live in a, on a street where we have row homes, so I could probably walk about the left of maybe two row homes, and I would be exhausted. Um, but I did get physical therapists that would come, and she would come and work with me, and we would do as much as I can. But, you know, I started pushing her to try to push myself, and I would try to do more than she would actually want me to do. But that was just me having, you know, grown up in a, in a sports culture, and I'm kind of competitive. And um just kind of want to push myself back and want to go further. But I really couldn't do as much as I wanted to do at the time because my body wouldn't just allow it. So, um, you know, with that, uh, I also had, you know, the, the mental issues because, um, you know, this, this, this process of, of near death was, was a situation where now I have to deal with always wondering if I'm going to get sick. And now what's going to happen after that? So, you know, I was home for maybe, maybe, maybe a month and I caught a cold and I mean, I lost it. I mean, I'm back in the, not the ICU, but I'm back in the emergency room. You know, I forced my wife to take me because mentally I'm thinking I'm going through this all over again. You know, I've been a, a grocery manager for years and, um, you know, a lot of my, my you know, issues and, and things I had to do is work. Or get around paperwork and, um, you know, meeting deadlines and stuff like that. And, you know, I do meetings and I hold different kind of, uh, you know, um, seminars at work when we got different vendors coming in and, um, you know, I'll do different presentations. But the thing of it is, is that it was time for me to register my kid for school and it was just taking me forever to do an application that would probably take me roughly 20 minutes at the most. That I would kind of have to sit down and I'm like, I'm looking at one line and I get one line done and I just can't figure out why I can't get it done. And I would could leave it away and come back to it maybe, you know, 15 minutes later and try to do it again. And I just couldn't get through it. You know, I had to get my wife to come and help me out. So I think this person really captured post-intensive post care syndrome really nicely and helps frame our discussion. 
So PICS classically is defined as a triad, and this definition comes from a 2012 paper. Dale Needham was one of the, one of the primary authors of that paper. It's a triad of physical impairment, cognitive impairment, and mental health problems that happen after being in the ICU. And this is a schematic that shows you a little bit more about that. You can see that the patient experience picks, experiences PICS as this triad I mentioned but the family can also experience PICS, and it's really mental health problems that come from the burden of supporting someone through critical illness. But both of these lead to decreased quality of life. Now, I'll remind you that the use of the term syndrome means we don't know a lot. And so kind of like Down syndrome when it first came along and acquired immune deficiency syndrome when it first came along, it's really just a collection of signs and symptoms. It doesn't give us any insight into the cause or any insight into the treatment. So I just want you to keep that in mind as you think about PICS. There's still a lot to know. But this is how I conceptualize PICS. So I think about triggers for PICS. So there are some patient level factors, age, dementia, what you were doing before you got into the ICU. There's some disease-related exposures, which for, for the folks at shock trauma might be trauma. It could be cancer, it could be surgery, and then some ICU factors. So the fact that we tend to keep people immobile, although I know, you know we're doing better and you guys are, are leading in that, in that. Invasive procedures, lots of light, noise, and then sedation can lead to pathophysiologic states, atrophy, delirium, not being able to taste, um, being hyper-aroused, which then lead to PICS. So you have the cognitive impairment, the physical impairment, and the mental health problems. So as we think about post-ICU outcomes, I want you to keep in mind there are lots of different ways to measure, and I'll take you through some of these measures which help us sort of characterize outcomes after, after critical illness. So I'll start with physical functioning, and I have a quote here from a, a trauma survivor that I interviewed as part of one of my studies. She said, gardening is not as easy anymore because if I sit down, it's harder to get up. I can get up, but it's not pretty. So this is a schematic that comes from Dale Needham's group that looks at how physical dysfunction can develop after an ICU stay. So there are things that we have an influence over, so days of ventilation, hospital length of stay, immobility, use of meds, that then lead to pulmonary impairments, neuromuscular impairments, and inability to move, which have a direct impact on quality of life. There are lots of ways to measure physical function that have been used. Six-minute walk test is probably one of the easier and conceptually simple. You just see how far somebody can walk in six minutes. But we can also measure pulmonary function. We can look at activities of daily living, like eating and bathing, instrumental activities of daily living, and then grip strength. This um, review, if you guys haven't seen it, is, is really useful. It was published in 2016, this year, ahead of print. It's a review of all the instruments that have been used to characterize recovery after critical illness. And just to give you a sense of what this literature looks like, they did a systematic review. There was 15,000 articles that they had to screen. There is a tremendous body of literature that described recovery after critical illness, but much less that actually puts it all together to help us develop a cohesive picture of what patients are experiencing and how to actually support them. But as part of this study, Alison Turnbull and her colleagues looked at the measurements of physical impairment that, that different studies used. So there were pulmonary impairment measures and neuromuscular impairment measures, as well as sort of general physical movement, like the six-minute walk test. So I'll show you that specifically. There was a multicenter study published. Um, it came out of the Hopkins group. It was 195 ICU survivors. They were only able to get 145 to actually complete a six-minute walk test at 26 minutes. They found that 94 improved, but more than a third actually didn't improve. But looking at the folks that did improve, they went from just under a two-minute mile to about a, or just under a 31-minute mile um, to a 20-minute mile. So you can see these, these folks are particularly impaired when they come out. This is walking very, very slowly. 
These folks are not able to move normally when they come out of the ICU, but at least some important subset are able to improve. Um, why can't people move? So one of the reasons that people have physical impairment after being in the ICU is that they develop something called ICU-acquired weakness, which is really just a catch-all phrase for anything that causes weakness after an ICU stay. Specifically, critical illness, neuromyopathy, just general myopathy or neuropathy can all develop after being in the ICU, and that leads to problems with physical function. It's multifactorial, like most of the things we see in the ICU. So bed rest, hyperglycemia, neuromuscular blockers and steroids, and especially these last two in combination can cause weakness that persist after an ICU stay. But I want to start, I want to focus on immobility because it's one of the things that we have the most control over. So what, what makes patients immobile in the ICU? This is where you talk. What's that? Ventilator. So it's hard, but not impossible to get people out of bed when they have a vent. Yeah. Sometimes we act, we yeah, so the, the comment was that physicians come, are, are a source of immobility because we don't get people out of bed and sometimes we restrain them and keep them from being able to move. Other thoughts? Medication. Medications. Yeah, so consciousness, whether it's impaired consciousness because we made them unconscious or because there's traumatic brain injury or some other cause can keep people from moving. Injury, if you've got a bunch of external fixators um, or you're in traction, that can be difficult. And then us, so we keep people from moving, sometimes for reasons that aren't completely founded in evidence. So you can walk people while they're ventilated. We should walk people while they're ventilated. Um, I know that you guys do this sometimes, we do this, but it's, it's still like an act of God to get somebody on a ventilator out of their bed. And we're, try we're trying, but we're not quite there yet. So moving on to cognitive function. Um, this is the second part of the PICS triad. I have another quote from a trauma survivor who said, every time I went to intensive care, it was weeks and weeks and weeks before I could put two sentences together in anything I read. And she really felt like she couldn't think she wasn't herself after being in the ICU. So going to another schematic from, from Needham's group, these are the things that factor into cognitive impairment. And I've grayed out PTSD and depression because I'll get to those later. This is really about ability to think. So there are things we can't do anything about, pre-existing personality traits, people who come in with psychiatric morbidity, other patient level factors like pre-ICU intelligence. But then there's anxiety, pain, and sedation, which we can do something about, delirium, which we can prevent or treat, hypoxemia and hypoglycemia, and all of these feed into cognitive impairment. And, and one of the nice things about these models in general is that they give us, they give us targets, they give us therapeutic targets. So that's one of, the nice, um, one of the nice reasons to look at models and to think about think about the syndrome in that way. I want to share another um, vignette with you from Nancy Andrews, who is a professor of art at the College of the Atlantic in Maine. She was in an ICU and experienced delirium and has a particularly poignant way of talking about it. So I'll play this for a couple of minutes. Undress me. I was shot full of drugs. I was too weak to move. I couldn't see my body, but I had been cut nearly in half. There was insects on the walls and ceiling. I was in a boat in the bottom of an underground waterway. I was in a deep well. I was tethered to the ground by rubber tubes attached to my genitals. I was in a space pod. I was on a raft in a library, in a conference room, 
in a fly-by-night health clinic. I was in the Arctic. I was in the desert. They were trying to kill me. They would try to get me into a room separate from everyone else or wait till late at night. I had found out about their secret pornography ring. I tried to tell my partner about this in hushed tones because I didn't want them to hear me and redouble their efforts. Where was I? They asked me this every day and I didn't know the answer. I was in the intensive care unit, the ICU of one of the best hospitals in the world, where doctors and nurses were using the most current medical technologies and know-how to save my life. A few months later, after I'd gotten home from the hospital, I went to see the surgeon for a checkup, and I told him about these terrible memories and the resulting diagnosis of PTSD. He said, PTS what? People don't generally remember anything from the ICU. Why then was I having nightmares and flashbacks and sleeplessness? Was it because I was weak? Did I lack resilience? Was I too sensitive? Was I crazy? Why was it so hard to do the things in my life that previously had been fairly easy? Why couldn't I seem to move forward? And why wasn't I perfect the way the surgeon said I would be when I recovered physically? What had happened to me in the hospital? They saved my life, and for this, I am deeply grateful. But life after this ICU experience was extraordinarily difficult. So. Nancy Andrews gives a particularly poignant accounting of delirium in the ICU. These are her pictures, actually. <clears throat> delirium is something that most of our patients experience. There are estimates that upwards of well, 50 to 80 percent, which is a huge range, of ventilated patients will de develop delirium in the ICU. And it really impacts how people process stimuli, how they interact, and it affects their recovery. And it's sometimes so recalcitrant that we end up discharging people to the floor or to home still delirious and that really impacts their quality of life and their ability to recover. So as we think about PICS and we think about risk, risk factors, it's really important to think about delirium and then neurocognitive assessments more broadly. So when it comes to measuring delirium, there are two most, the most reliable instruments, the most validated instruments are the confusion assessment method or the CAM-ICU and then the ICDSC. Uh, how many of you are familiar with one of these? I see more hands, good. Um, CAM-ICU, CAM-ICU fans? Okay, how about the ICDSC? All right, got one in the back. This is what the CAM-ICU looks like. So um, the CAM-ICU can be administered in mo to most patients. Anyone with a Richmond agitation, agitation sedation scale of minus three or above can have a CAM-ICU administered to them. So that's the first step, is assessing their RAS. And then you take them through a series of steps to figure out whether they have inattention or disorganized thinking. And it's very straightforward. It takes about three or four minutes, if that, to determine whether a patient's delirious. 
Now, one of the hallmarks of delirium is that it waxes and wanes. So if a nurse administers the CAM-ICU and says the patient's delirious and then you do it and they're not, it doesn't mean that she's wrong or that he's wrong. Um, it just means that it's waxing and waning. It's, so it's really important that this be done routinely. And in our ICU, we suggest that the nurses do it once per shift. There are some ICUs where they do it more often than that. But you're not going to find delirium unless you actually look for it. And if you, don't, if you don't look for it, you don't find it, you don't treat it, then patients have worse cognitive outcomes and actually an increased mortality. When it comes to neurocognitive function more broadly, there are a number of different domains that we think about intelligence, memory, orientation, attention, and executive function. And in patients who recover from the ICU, we can test all of these. So this is a graph from a study that was published by Ramona Hopkins, who's the person um, who had the first quote I told you about. This was a study of 94 ARDS survivors. And they looked at, at cognitive function after ICU at hospital discharge, which are the black bars, one year, which are the white bars, and then two years, which are the shaded bars, where 100 is the mean as a normal for population. And you can see that in all of these measures of intelligence, and these are different ways of measuring intelligence, verbal memory, general me memory and attention, the ICU survivors fell below the mean in all of them at the time of discharge. And only at one and two years were they starting to recover back to normal. So cognitive, cognitive impairment after ICU is extraordinarily common. When it comes to preventing and treating cognitive dysfunction, there are a few things that we can do in the ICU. The first is to prevent PAD, pain, agitation, and delirium, which is a major initiative of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, to maintain cognitive stimulation, to reorient and reassure people. So when they think that they're seeing bugs on the wall, talk to them about, you know, it's not there, you're doing okay, everything's fine, you're safe. And then stimulating people, getting them outside, making them feel normal. Um, I wish that we did this at Penn, we don't. Um, but again, you know, going back to that, we sometimes keep people in bed and immobile for not good reasons. I think sometimes we don't get people outside and stimulate them for equally not good reasons. <clears throat> now going on to emotional health. This is the same schematic, but we're focusing now on PTSD and depression, which are common after the ICU. So it's those same modifiable risk factors that lead to PTSD and impaired quality of life. And really, there's a focus on depression, anxiety, and, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and there are different measures for all of these. So going back to that review that Alison Turnbull published, there are a number of different ways to assess depression and anxiety. So there's the HADS, um, which I'll go over, and the Beck Depression Index. And you can see in the literature people are using all of these, but there's a preference for the HADS and the BDI. <clears throat> When you look at the HADS, which is the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, they're both anxiety items and depression items, and it's really just additive. You just go through, and um, they're, they're scored on a Likert scale. So I feel tense or wound up. I can sit at ease. I feel restless. You take someone through all of these and, and add up their scores. And then with respect to depression, you ask them about whether they feel cheerful, they've lost interest in their appearance, if they look forward to enjoyment. And this can give you, this is, Objective, it's validated, and you can track depression and anxiety over time and in populations of patients using this instrument. In um, one multi-hospital study, there were 520 ALI patients, acute lung injury patients in this cohort. They had 274 that died before three-month follow-up. So just as a reminder, we all, we all know these are very sick people, so they don't all survive for a long period of time after getting out of the ICU. But of those that completed at least one hospital anxiety depression scale, you can see that anxiety is the dark bar here. Almost 40% of the patients were experiencing anxiety, and if anything, it went up over time. 
And then when you look at depression, about 25% of the patients were experiencing depression, and there was really no drop-off over time out to a 24-month follow-up. If you look at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder in particular, there is the impact of event scale and the post-traumatic stress syndrome scale that are used most commonly in the literature here. 37% of the papers that were in this particular review of 400 papers down from 15,000 um, use the IES. And this is the same graph as before, but with the PTSD added in, you can see that about 20% of the patients had PTSD. And there are estimates that at 15 to 40% of patients who come out of the ICU will experience PTSD. Now, um, Wes Ely's group at Vanderbilt has shown an incidence of 8%, so th there's a little bit of play here depending on which population you're looking at, but it's not insignificant. There are a lot of people who come out of the ICU and are profoundly altered um, and are still hyper-aroused, still really traumatized by just being in the ICU. And I'll share with you one particular anecdote from a patient that I interviewed who was in the ICU after having had ARDS. She was a cystic fibrosis patient. And she kept remembering the vent alarm. The vent kept alarming when she was in the hospital. And she got out of the ICU, she did okay, got home, and then five years later had to be admitted to a general hospital ward for something unrelated. And she heard a vent alarm somewhere in the hospital. And she checked herself out AMA. She said, I can't deal. I don't know what that is. I, I know that it's a bad sound. And she got so wound up, she said, I have to go. And these are the kinds of memories that people are having that we don't really know what to do with or how to support. So as we think about preventing and treating mental health problems in the ICU, there are a few different strategies that have been studied using ICU diaries, using recreational therapy. Do you guys have pets here? Do you have like, dogs and things that walk around? Not routinely? Yeah, we, we have some, but we don't see them enough. Um, and then pharmacotherapy. <clears throat> A focus on ICU diaries. You can help people journal, and just keeping track of what happened is really useful because people commonly lose time when they're in the ICU. They don't keep track of, they, they can't keep track of where they are, what's going on, or what's happened. And so diaries, both for patients and families, is a great way for them to chronicle what's happened and to have some, to, to make some sense of what's going on with them. When we look at quality of life, which is a more global measure, there are a lot of quality of life measures that have been used in the literature, but the short form 36 and the European quality of life are the two that are used most commonly. So here, this is a study of, I think it was about 200 patients um, in Scandinavia. They were looking at health-related quality of life and return to work after critical illness. And you can see there are a lot of different domains here, physical functioning, physical role, bodily pain, and so on. And the general population had scores up here. This is the first bar. And in all of the ICU, the ICU patients, three months and, and 12 months, you can see that their quality of life was lower in every domain. Um, Again, we're still trying to figure out why and, and how to support people, but it's clear that there's something that's happening to these patients that's impairing their quality of life. A lot of these patients are not able to go back to work, not able to go back to school. And if they're breadwinners, that has profound financial implications for their families. <clears throat> now, moving beyond the patient, there are families that we take care of, too. And their lives are altered by critical illness. I think especially in a trauma population where nobody was expecting you know, to get hit by a bus or to get shot. And so the same manifestations of PICs that we've seen in patients with respect to mental health, we also see in family members. Family members are affected by critical illness because there's an emotional toll for seeing, but that's, that's um, when you see your loved one in bed, when you see them not themselves, especially when patients are delirious, family members find this particularly distressing. 
the physical toll just being in the ICU, not being able to sleep, not being in your normal place, not being able to take a shower the, the way you normally do. There's a financial burden, and sometimes we'll see that families just aren't around because they can't be, because they'll lose their job, they, they don't have the means to be at bedside, and then there are competing priorities. So for families who have young children, for instance, there needs to be a caregiver at home, and so you have families who are torn trying to decide between one family member or the other, which really isn't fair. Um, if you want to look up Pix Family, don't Google Pix Family because this is what you will find. They're very cute, but it's not what you're looking for. <clears throat> so if you look at depression just as an indicator of Pix Family among spouses of severe sepsis uh, survivors, this comes out of Jack of Washington's group, and Jack is at the University of Michigan. If you look at the wives and husbands of people who've had an ICU stay, or we think that they've had an ICU stay as a result of severe sepsis, you can see their depression scores before. And the reason they have a before is that this is part of the health and retirement study. So this is a longitudinal study of older adults. And so they just survey them at regular time intervals. And as would happen, as you would expect to happen, some of them get sick. So they end up with pre-ICU data, which is very rare. It's very hard to get sort of a pre-functional status. But if you look at their depres depression before, it's sort of here. And then there's a spike after severe sepsis. Wives go up higher than husbands, um, and then they stay elevated. Husbands seem to drop down again. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, but, but you can see, especially in this, in this time of supporting a critically ill loved one, there's a spike for both of them. The depressive symptoms go up. This is not insignificant for family members. And as we think about developing support interventions for patients, we need to think about how to roll their families into those interventions as well. When it comes to more global management strategies, there are a lot of ways that we need to support people who have come through the ICU. And you may need to enlist the help of some specialists. And we subscribe to multidisciplinary care in the ICU. We've drunk that Kool-Aid, so it applies just as much after the ICU as it does in the ICU. People don't necessarily eat the same, so they may not have an appetite. Food may taste profoundly different, and so you may need to enlist a nutritional counselor to help them figure out foods that they both like and that will actually support them in, in their recovery. You may need speech therapists to help to learn how to swallow and how to speak normally, especially having had a tracheostomy. Physical therapists are important for dealing with ICU-acquired weakness. Counseling and psychotherapy are necessary for people who have depression, anxiety, or PTSD, and it can go hand in hand with pharmacotherapy, but really behavioral therapy is important as well. Recreational therapy is important to support the spirit and occupational therapy. So how do you put on your socks? How do you move around? How do you hold a pen? When you look at ICU follow-up clinics in particular, they have some promise, but the data is really mixed. So non-attendance rates are high and cancellation rates are high, probably because we don't do a great job of letting these patients know why it's so important. Because if we don't provide anticipatory guidance for these patients as they leave the ICU, primary care providers don't know what PICS is. Patients look and they say, oh, I have an appointment. I don't know what this is for. I'm, I'm not going. Um, so there's definitely some room to go there in terms of pr promoting ICU follow-up clinics. It's not clear who benefits from this. So if someone breaks their leg and they were drunk and they end up in the ICU tubed for a day and then they go home, does that person need an ICU follow-up clinic? Or does the person who had vent-dependent respiratory failure for two months need follow-up clinic? We don't know. And we don't know how often to follow these people up. Do they need one visit? Do they need several? What are the appropriate intervals? And how long do you follow them out? 
what patients report in clinics is what you would expect. So it's that fixed triad, the emotional, the physical, the cognitive problems, but lots of somatic complaints as well that are hard to categorize. So things like losing their appetite, nail bridging, so probably related to vitamin deficiencies, sexual dysfunction, which we're really, really bad at talking about, but impotence, inability to orgasm, just lack of interest, or being afraid to make yourself vulnerable with a partner because your body looks very different and hair loss or changes in hair color, hair pattern, and also delayed return to work. So that going back to that Norwegian study I told you about, there were 63% of the patients at the beginning were students are working, and of those, only about half had returned to work at one year. And the predictors of return to work were being male, having higher education, being optimistic, which is interesting and then a medical disease category as opposed to a surgical disease category. And again, this is still preliminary work. We don't know why, but the fact that only half of these folks are returning to work means that someone's paying the, someone has to pay the bills, someone has to support them, and so there's a tremendous financial consequence to people not recovering and not getting back to, their, to where they were. So research directions, um, always future research. So how many of you are familiar with the translational research spectrum? Yes. Ring a bell at all? Maureen. OK, good. <laughs> so um, I am a health services researcher. I think about how to deliver health care. I think about whether we're able to achieve the outcomes that we set out to achieve. And it's very different than what basic science people do. But it's not better. It's not worse. It's just a different part of the translational research spectrum. So what this spectrum is, it, it describes really all the different kinds of research that we do in biomedicine. And you start off really with the bench. So you start off with animal research. You start off with understanding mechanisms of disease. Then you move it into clinical work, and maybe you come up with a new drug. Then you implement the drug in the clinic. Then you see if people actually get the drug the way they're supposed to. And then you look at population health outcomes. And so it's really characterized as a whole translational research spectrum. I live in the T3 to T4 world. People that do animal research live in the T0 to T1 world. But they're all connected. And there's interplay between all of these. And I like to think about PICS and opportunities for research in PICS using this translational spectrum. So a T0 to T1 question might be, how do genetic profiles influence the response to stress and inflammation? So not everyone who gets sepsis is going to get PICS, but some people do. And is that a result of genetic makeup? Is there something about the proteome or about the microbiome that affects this? We don't know. So there, there are opportunities in that space. When we think about clinical work, do quieter ICU environments improve sleep? We know that if we disrupt people's sleep-wake cycle, they're more likely to get delirious. And if they become delirious, they're more likely to die and more likely to have cognitive dysfunction if, if they get out of the ICU. If we think about clinical practice guidelines, what are the guidelines that might improve outcomes? So maybe if we have a protocol of spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing trial and walking people on the vents, maybe those improve patient outcomes, but we don't know. So are there potential bundles of care that we can study to look to see if, patient, if patients have better outcomes after the ICU? And then when you look at population health, are ICU follow-up clinics a good thing? If they are a good thing, who staffs them? I became an anesthesiologist to get out of clinic. That's <laughs> not really true, but I don't know that I want to go back to clinic. Um, so who should staff it, and then who should pay for it? Is this a primary care visit? Is this something else that the insurance company pays for to prevent a readmission down the line? These are all questions that, that are up in the air. So for the researchers in the crowd, there's, there's a lot of room here. 
Um, parting thoughts for this part of the talk, since I've talked very fast. Signs that your patients may develop PICs, so these are things you should look out for in the ICU. Sometimes your patients will exhibit PICs before they leave. And these people, I, I remember one particular trauma patient who came in, he got shot because someone got out of prison, came looking for him, and went to get him, that he, he was a target. And so every time he saw someone walk by his room, he would startle and become tachycardic. Um, when you start to manifest PTSD in the ICU, you're certainly at risk. And those are folks that you should be looking to set up with support services even prior to ICU discharge. People that had unexpected critical illness. So in some of the pilot work that I did before the PICS trauma study I'll tell you about, I interviewed transplant patients. And I was particularly impressed at how little they had, how many, how few PICS symptoms they had, because they knew, they were prepared. Someone said, well, you're gonna get your liver transplant and you're gonna go in the ICU, or you're gonna get your heart transplant and you're gonna go in the ICU, and it's gonna look like this, and you're gonna be weak, and we'll give you rehab, and you'll be okay. And so when I talked to them after the fact, they said I was fine. I mean, it was rough, but I was fine, because I had a physical therapist, and everybody knew it was happening, and, and I felt like I was supported. Um, it's very different than you know if you were walking down the street and then you wake up two weeks later in an ICU. Delirium that persists at hospital discharge. So although we try to fix, we try to prevent delirium, we try to treat it, sometimes we end up discharging people who are delirious just to try to get them back to a normal setting, hoping that that may reset them. But if you're discharging delirious patients, they're in a state of cognitive dysfunction, so you're, you're discharging them with what will become PICS. And then poor family coping mechanisms. So patients need a lot of support. They're not able to do a lot of things for themselves if they come out of the ICU, especially if they've been in the ICU for a long time. And if families are not there, if they don't understand, if they don't have the financial resources to support the patient, then I would think about setting them up for support services early on. Um, so these were the objectives of this part of the talk. Hopefully you can list uh, three components of PICS, and I'll move on because the answers are here. Two clinical factors that increase the risk of PICS, two environmental factors, and, and some interventions that show promise. And since I have a little bit of time, I'll tell you about the work that we're doing now at Penn. There are some resources, um, if you guys have the slides available to you, that are really useful in learning more about, about PICS. And I'll point out here at the bottom, icudelirium.org, which is a, it's a special focus on delirium, but it's for care providers, but it's also for patients and families. So if you have patients and families where there's a delirious patient and the family is particularly disturbed by the fact that they're delirious and they don't really understand it, they can't really wrap their head around it, um, I would encourage them to visit this website because there are videos, there are vignettes, there's sort of an explanation that's patient and family friendly that talks about what delirium is and, and how we can treat it. Um, so a little bit about the study that we're doing now, which is a pilot study to characterize patient-centered outcomes after traumatic injury. The, what we're doing is interviewing patients and families who are severely injured, and we've since gotten rid of this ISS criterion, um, but I can talk about that if, if you guys have questions about that. But we're looking for 12 to 15 patient family dyads, and so we're looking for people who've had a traumatic injury, come into the ICU, and have been vented for at least two days, so high-risk population for PICS. And what we're doing is we're interviewing their families while the patient's in the ICU. We're interviewing families to find out about pre-ICU function, functional status, to understand what the family member, um, what their understanding is of the patient's illness and what they anticipate going forward. And that's what we consider our baseline interview. When the patient's discharged to the ward, we interview the patient and the family member, both separately and, and simultaneously, 
we do neurocognitive testing at that point. And then we repeat that same battery of tests, the interviews and the neurocognitive testing, one week after hospital discharge, one month, two months, six months, and 12 months after hospital discharge. And we're doing that at our trauma surgery, our trauma surgery ICU. Um, for the later time points, we actually go to patients' homes, which is another funny thing in my department. Again, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm based in a hospital. And so when I went to our administrative staff and I said, well, I need to do home visits, they said, what are you, what are you talking about? That's all right, we did it anyway. So um, we screen eligible patients in the ICU, we talk to their care team, we say, is this a good patient for this study? Is this the right time to approach this family? Does this patient have a reasonable chance of recovery? We interview the family member and then we talk to the patient. Um, these are our inclusion criteria. We got rid of the injury severity score because we were having issues with enrollment. We don't have quite as many trauma patients as you all do, um, so it was a little bit of a, of a barrier. And at this point, we're stuck to fluency in English, but hopefully moving forward, we'll be able to expand. The exclusion criteria um, are really just discharge to an LTAC incarceration because we don't want to coerce people. Um, if we can't get to them within an hour, we are not going to do it. And then um, if I'm taking care of them at the time that they're enrolled, which is just a minor thing. Um, that's my study team. We have a lot of people working with us, and I like to acknowledge the people that are working with us. And that's it. So we've got time for questions. Thank you, everybody. been able to control for the mechanism of injury with the PTSD outcome, like if it was a violent um, injury that's gotten so the question is if we've been able to control for the mechanism of injury in looking at the incidence of PTSD. We've actually not done that with our work because we're starting with the, qual with the qualitative work. And I'm not sure about the work that's been done before. I can tell you that one of the reasons I was interested in studying trauma patients is that they're relatively underrepresented in the PICS literature. So there's lots of MICU patients. There's lots of sort of general SICU patients, but not as many trauma patients. Um, but I'd have to go back and look to see if they've stratified by you know, violent mechanism. In our study, we are stratifying by blunt versus penetrating, which sort of gets to that idea. I mean, granted, if you're impaled on something that you fell onto, it could be. That's not necessarily violent, not somebody doing it to you, but we're trying to get at that. That's a really nice presentation, thanks. Thank you. So we talk a lot uh, in conferences and all around about things like pain and um, agitation, delirium, kind of stuff. Trying to minimize that. One thing that comes up sometimes is somebody's been in the unit for a couple of weeks, maybe a while, and you think, is the guy just depressed? I mean, right. it's sort of it's a reactive kind of depression, obviously. And, and I just kind of always wondered is there some role at that stage for starting antidepressants, which you know, may play into part of what goes on fix later on, knowing that those drugs are going to take some weeks to yeah. have an impact. And I don't know if it's been studied that really at all, but it's something that. Yeah, so the, so the question is, as we consider pain and agitation and delirium, sometimes we think of depression as a cause of, of someone being withdrawn, and, and should we, or have we, have people studied the use of pharmacotherapy to treat depression in the ICU? And I've not seen any large study that has done that. Certainly in critical care, we, we have a deficit of large randomized control trials. Um, in my own practice, we will sometimes start SSRIs, understanding that it's going to be a while. Um, but I don't personally have my own algorithm for when I start thinking about that. It's sort of, you know, two or three weeks out, and you're sort of pulling out your hair, and you're thinking, well, 
I've ruled out all the big stuff and they're still kind of withdrawn, maybe I should start this. I think we're actually much better for people who come in with a pre-existing diagnosis of depression. We go, we'll get them back on their meds. But for, for folks who have an incident um, depression in the ICU, I, I, don't, I don't have a good, a good answer. I read uh, this past week about it, and I forget which hospital in is either Boston or New York that actually is having a psychiatrist based in the ICU. Oh, yeah. Um, see that is in that was in the yeah. 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 Our psychiatrists don't like to talk to patients if they can't phonate, so that's difficult. I mean, obviously, you can engage really meaningfully with a patient who can't phonate, but that seems to be a barrier, at least where we are. Other thoughts or questions? All right, well, I got you guys out early. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.